National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues that affect American national security. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th to the 26th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota. And now your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and even from across the nation to help us learn more about American national security. Our discussion topic today takes us to the People's Republic of China. Uh, We're going to take a hard look at the People's Liberation Army Air Force and the People's Liberation Army Navy Naval Aviation, as well as other military aviation assets uh, services inside China. We're going to consider the advancements the Chinese have made in their aviation forces, how those forces might be used in a conflict, and how much of a threat those forces are to the United States, to our allies, and to our friends should conflict erupt between the U.S. and China. Our guest today is an expert on this subject. Daniel Rice is the China Military and Political Strategy Subject Matter Expert at Marine Corps University's Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare. He's also a non-resident senior fellow with the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Longtime listeners of the show may recall that we had David uh, Deptula, uh, who is the director of the Mitchell Institute, on uh, a number of months ago talking about the Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict and the aviation aspects of that. Well, uh, General Deptula was the one who recommended to me that I get, bring Daniel Rice on to talk about China. So uh, we're in good standing here. At the Krulak Center, Daniel Rice focuses on Chinese politics. Chinese military power, especially air power, and Indo-Pacific geopolitics. His side hustle is that he's a chief operating officer of the open-source geopolitical intelligence company Foreign Brief. Daniel's a graduate of the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Hopkins Nanjing Center, their preeminent China research center based in Nanjing, China. He spent several years working and studying in China, and he is a fluent Mandarin speaker. He's also professionally proficient in Spanish, and he speaks some Arabic. So, Daniel Rice, welcome to National Security This Week. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on the show. And where are you sitting this morning since we're on Zoom with each other? Yeah, so I'm actually sitting in Chinatown in Washington, (laughs) D.C. Funny enough, yes. Um, So I live here, but I commute down to Quantico for uh, working at the Krulak Center. So you, you've got the reverse uh, the reverse commute going out of D.C. in the morning rather than uh, yeah. coming into D.C. <laughs> that's probably Yeah, right. that's right. And some weird timings involved there, but yes. <laughs> yeah. So, Daniel, before we dive into the, the gist of our topic for today, I'd like to, uh, listeners to learn a little bit more about you. Uh, you're now serving at the Marine Corps University, as well as at the, really the premier aerospace studies think tank, uh, the Mitchell Institute. And you've studied at two of the most prestigious international relations centers in the world. Uh, So what was it about China that so interested you that you chose to concentrate your studies on that nation? Yeah, so, uh, well, first off, thank you for the introduction. It's very, very kind. Um, So really, it's kind of a a nice story, actually. But really what kicked off my interest in China was that at one point when I was uh, substantially younger, uh, my grandfather had sent me a, a newspaper clipping of BlackRock Group. Mm -hmm. And they were starting up the Schwartzman Scholar Program. And he said, you know, at that point, I was interested in business. And he said, look, Dan, if you're interested in business, you need to know about China. So I started studying Chinese. And it was very, very soon 
into my studies that I found myself at Middlebury Language School. And, you know, I wasn't really sold on business. I'd done it before and I was really interested in national security. And I, I figured out, you know, wow, if you're a linguist and you're very aware of China, that could be really, really useful for national security. And that was right around 10 years ago now. So um, quite a bit of time. But yeah, from there, you know, I, I just decided outright, I said, yeah, I want to get very, very smart on China. And in the future, I want to apply this to helping us understand the issues that we face and helping our national security industry, uh, learning about China, understanding how they think, how they operate. Um, and then obviously that translated into the schools that you mentioned, going and getting professional degrees uh, that would support that, getting experience in the country, living and working there for a few years. And then uh, I ended up at the Mitchell Institute, and then I really started focusing on air power specifically, as opposed to the broader. Oh, we may we may have some technical difficulties here. Oh, we lost you there for a second, Daniel. Uh, you, oh. you were saying something about the broader. Oh, yes. Um, so, like I was saying, when I when I started at the Mitchell Institute, I was able to dive into the air power aspect of China. Um, which is, you know, very different than the much broader approach that you can take because China is such a large issue set to deal with. Right? Oh, yes. Massive, massive. Uh, so uh, there's a language re requirement to earn a master's at uh, at Johns Hopkins, right, at SICE? Yes. So you were already sort of way ahead of the game there by having studied Mandarin uh, quite a bit before you even got there, I take it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I, because I'd studied at the Hopkins Nanjing Center, which is all graduate level courses, um, the requirement is at least half of the courses are in Mandarin. Uh, funny enough, you know, I ended up taking strategic studies, learning from a PLA officer in Mandarin, uh, which, which is a kind of a cool one. Um, but yeah, so I'd already had that requirement. And that's when I decided, you know, I like big challenges. I like difficult languages. I'm going to pick up Arabic. And so I did that for about two years. Uh. <laughs> all right, all right. So now we know who we have on our show today. Uh, one of those people with a hundred-pound brain. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump into our into our topic uh, for today, Dan. Uh, Chinese uh, military aviation advancements, uh, sort of the geopolitics of their increasing willing, willingness to use those assets really to project power and influence in the Western Pacific. We can we can talk about some other locations as well, but really what we're for, worrying about is the Western Pacific area. Uh, Dan, Dan, what can you tell us about the trajectory of the People's Liberation Army? Uh, what, what's that trajectory been on advancing their aviation capabilities? Maybe, maybe you could cover the Air Force, the Naval Air Forces, anything else you think the listeners should know about PLA aviation? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, fundamentally, the PLA Air Force, right, the PLAF, as we call it, and the PLA Navy, uh, the plan, they both fall under that macro PLA, right? The People's Liberation Army. Um, so a lot of their strategies are in support of the overarching PLA strategy. And one of those things that the PLA is really marching to a beat on right now is modernization of their military. If you look back 20 years ago, uh, they were not very modernized. They were very much ground centric. Um, they had some air, some Navy, but it wasn't really a focus, right? And so what uh, under, under Xi Jinping, but really more starting under Hu Jintao and going back even to Jiang Zemin, uh, the different preeminent leaders of China, 
they started China on a path of military modernization. And they've set a couple dates. Uh, 2049 is one of them. Uh, and then 2027 is another one of those. They're matched up to centenaries of the PRC, uh, the People's Republic of China, the founding of it, and the centenary of the founding of the PLA. Um, so 2027, 2049, those are the two dates you should keep in mind. By 2027, they hope to have a modern military uh, able of fighting and winning local informationized, as they call it, wars. And then by 2049, a world-class military. Think of it like the, the leading military in the world, right, is what they're shooting for. And so that, that translates for the, the plan and the PLATH, the Navy and the Air Force, into having to modernize a lot of their systems. And specifically, aviation was one of those things that they were really, really far behind on, quite frankly. Um, just not so long ago, they were flying a lot of Q5s, J6s, J7s, think Soviet-era fighters, right? So the way that that's, uh, that's really played out is that they've spent a lot of time focused on developing modern fighters a lot of times that is pulling from Soviet era models, licensed versions that they get, that they could then produce domestically and then iterating on those, right? Um, and, and part of that actually, part of that taking these models, building copies and then iterating is actually also part of a strategy to not only have that modern military, military but have the industrial capacity behind it to sustain it and develop it into the future. So that's, um, that's part of the overall strategy that aviation has gone through. It's developing that industrial base and modernizing their aircraft to be able to fight in, and I'll touch on this word again, informationized wars. Mm -hmm. And what that means informationized is if you think of things like um, not quite JADC2, right, which is the buzzword, but some well, and, sort and, of... And what does that stand for, for our listeners? Uh, joint All Domain <laughs> Command and Control, okay. yes. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's an envision, like it's a vision of having a networked battle space where every unit can communicate amongst itself, and then you've got a more secure network to communicate amongst platforms and therefore have more situational awareness on the battle space, right? Um, so they, that's, but that's kind of how they're thinking about this, about informationized warfare, is having a lot of different nodes or different units in the battle space that then can communicate. And so that requires having things like more advanced communications equipment, right? It also involves controlling the signature that you have coming off of your aircraft. So think stealth. Um, and it also requires having stronger sensing capabilities because you wanna hide your, your signature and you also wanna find your enemy's signature so that you can have more information in that space. And so that's why you see a lot of the more modern platforms that they've now started developing have these kinds of capabilities behind them. Uh, so just to, to speak on the platforms themselves a little bit. So I mentioned a while ago, they were flying older models of Soviet fighters. Um, think MiG-19, which is what their J-6, their old, one of their oldest planes, was a direct ripoff or licensed copy of <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, the J-7, another licensed copy of the MiG-21. And then some of their more modern fighters, something like the J-11, is a, a licensed copy of the Su-27. 
and then they've run iterations of that again. Um, but now they have things like the J10 and the J20, which are not necessarily, the J20 is more new, J10 is not as new, but we're still talking like only five, six, seven years ago that they started really producing them in mass. And those are actually domestically designed, right? And they look radically different uh, than what you're looking at when you're looking at like a J11. Um, but so that's that's where they're trying to go is in these these J10s, even these J11s, the SU27 license version iteration, um, then they're trying to build in those sensor suites, those comms links, uh, some aspects of the stealth, you get more of that in the J20 than you do in the other ones. Um, but trying to get to that point uh, of that 2027 where they've really got more, we'll call them fifth generation platforms that have the sensor suites, that have the comms links that are able to network and then affect uh, better information control in the battle space. Um, so along with those, right, along with the fighters, they also have their, their bomber series. Um, people that are listening right now probably have seen some of the videos that came out about the H-20. It looks oddly similar to a B-2, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe B-21. B-21 is kind of smaller than the B-2. So uh, that is also you know, quote unquote, domestically designed, uh, definitely domestically produced, but uh, it, it is their next step. When, when you say a world-class military, one of the aspects of it is long range strike, right? So that's, that's something they're developing, that stealthy long range bomber in the H-20 um, to get to those, those year markers that we laid down. Uh, and on, on the industrial base, a lot of these companies that are producing these planes themselves, they, uh, it looks roughly similar to what we have in the US in terms of specific companies specializing in specific platforms. But there is a, a little bit more cross play there where certain companies will take on licensed versions and they'll produce something similar. One of those is the H6. Um, but there's a couple, couple specific companies that are really helping push the, the evolution of these aircraft and the development of them and then the production of them. One of those is AVIC. Um, it's, uh, I know the acronym here is gonna kill me. It's the, the China Aerospace Corporation. It's one of the largest ones here. Okay. Um, and <laughs> well, I'm trying to see it. The Aviation Industry Corporation of China. Okay. And, and they, they're one of the largest ones. I believe they're on the fortune, you know, the five top 500 largest companies list and they produce a lot of different designs um, but more specifically they focus on a lot of the fighter series they focus on some of the bomber series and some of the lift series that they have uh, you've also got places like the Chengdu aircraft corporation those that's the company that's producing j10s and j20s so a lot of more of those domestically produced domestically designed aircraft um, they also actually do an mq1 lookalike called the the wing long or the pterosaur um, that they've actually started to export okay. uh, which is interesting right um, and then there's there's a whole smattering of different companies uh, the main takeaway for why these companies are important is because they are now able to domestically produce a wide variety of aircraft and, and one of those even is strategic airlift aircraft, mm. right? So 
before there was the Y8, which was uh, this kind of a copy of the Antonov uh, AN21, AN21. Um, and then there was a Y7 and a Y9 that were, they're roughly analogous to like a C-130. And now they have a, a Y-20 aircraft, which is a strategic heavy airlift aircraft that they're producing quite a lot of. Um, that is something very, very new in the Chinese aerospace industry is developing these kinds of airlift. And the reason for that is because, as, as I'm sure your listeners are, are aware, if you're trying to have a force that can go beyond your borders, you need a logistics chain that can support that force. Yeah. And before, China did not really have a very robust logistics platform or chain to be able to sustain anything overseas. Um, so that that's also pushing in that 2027 direction. Um, so I know I touched on some of the platforms, but the, the macro level of overall how the Chinese aircraft inventory across the, the Air Force and the Navy, the Chinese Air Force and Navy, is that they're divesting those older J6s, J7s, um, and they're bringing online much more of the J10s, J11s, J20s, that stealth fifth generation aircraft for their naval, so their aircraft operation, uh, naval aviation operations, they're looking at the J15. It's the only real multi-role aircraft they have, and they're trying to do that, uh, trying to make that the premier carrier ops platform that they're going to use. I, d I definitely um, want to ask you about the the PLA Navy's uh, carriers yeah. uh, a little bit later in the show, if I could. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely touch on them. Okay. Uh, for, for our audience, uh, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Daniel Rice, who serves as the China military and pol political strategy subject matter expert at Marine Corps University's Brute Kulak Center, uh, where he specializes in China and Indo-Pacific geopolitics. Uh, our show is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, Daniel, let's press on. Uh, you, you just did a phenomenal job of covering both the PLA Air Force and the PLA Navy, Naval Aviation side. Uh, it sound, can I, I'm going to ask two follow-up questions. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, maybe you can touch on these very, very quickly. Did the Chinese in, invest heavily in changing the entire structure of their military because they saw how the United States has been operating really since the first Gulf War? That's number one. And number two, how fast have they been able to advance their capabilities, their designs and whatnot due to espionage operations? Uh, yeah, uh, two fantastic questions. So number one, yes, right? So Desert Storm was the wake-up call moment for the PLA writ large. They saw how we operated, um, and then they saw the, the way that – Iraq at the time looked a heck of a lot similar to the PLA, right? And th they said, oh, no, if, if the U.S. wanted to do that to us, they probably could. And so that's where, um, you know, going back to the jargon here, that's where the idea of informationized warfare kind of really stemmed from was, wow, you've got networked assets to include some space and laser guided bombs, and you're able to take out all these critical assets very quickly. And so they said, that's the flagship, you know, that's the flag planted there. That's what we need to get to. And so, yes, they invested very heavily in bringing their military up to speed to be able to do that. 
Um, in terms of espionage, you know, number one, yeah, um, there's definitely an aspect of that, but it's ironically, it's not so much the espionage that helped them out in building up their capabilities, but it was more old partnerships. Mm. Um, so one of the things is that I didn't really mention yet is uh, missile technology, right? So there's kind of two, two sides to a, a story here. One side is there was at one point, I believe it was an AIM-9 that was embedded in an aircraft that we had shot that China got their hands on. And they kind of, you know, retroactively took it apart and was like, oh yeah, yeah, this is how we can build an air-to-air missile. And then the other side is, and they, they did that and then they developed it. And that's why a lot of their missiles look pretty similar to that series, even though, you know, over time, the internals on that missile have changed pretty radically for the U.S., still looks relatively similar on the outside. Um, but then on the other side of the coin, there was a, in the eighties, there was actually an Israeli Sino, so Chinese cooperation on what is now the PL-8 missile that they field, uh, which is a medium range air to air missile. And so the cooperation there actually gave them the technology to be able to produce domestically what they can now field. And that was actually, I believe it was Elbit Systems that was part of that yeah. partnership back then. Um, obviously a very, very large defense manufacturer nowadays, um, certainly back then too. So it's it's been a mix of espionage, theft, and also, you know, we'll not call them uh, publicly knowledge or publicly knowledge partnerships, but partnerships that at the time were relatively legitimate and that, you know, keep in mind this, it all, it all only depends on when you look at it in time. In the eighties, we were looking at China, they were opening up and reforming and we were saying, yeah, they might become a democracy. We should help them out, right? Like they're opening up and their capitalist ideas will help them push towards becoming a democracy. So it wasn't that big of a threat. And, and quite frankly, you know, it took until the last, not so long few you know few years for us to really wake up to the fact that what we had done back then is really starting to uh, to cause issues now to put it politely yeah, you know? yeah. that's that's a good way to frame it no question yeah. about it um so so it was those types of partnerships obviously the soviet tech played a huge role but partnerships with the israeli with elbit systems definitely helped on their missile tech and then there was some theft of f-35 plans um, rumors of theft of B2 plans, which I, I kind of alluded to in my uh, opening statements, right? On the H20, looks very similar. So both of those things taken together definitely pushed China to be able to catch up to where the West is militarily um, in terms of tech, right? And, and we haven't even talked, and I don't, we probably won't have too much time to talk about the human side of this training and readiness and everything like that. Um, but Suffice it to say, there's a long way for them to go to be able to field these things in combat to the level that somebody like a U.S. military member would be able to. Sure. Um, there's a lot of different factors there, too. That might be the uh, the only saving grace that we have right now as we're approaching some of these, uh, these key uh, dates that you mentioned earlier. Uh, yeah. Dan, let's continue on with these discussions on these advancements. Uh, we have seen lots and lots of news reports about the Chinese uh, flying, uh, you know, their their aviation assets across the 
Taiwan Strait, right up against the Taiwanese aid is the Air, air Defense Identification Zone. Uh, is this a projection of power or is it just a demonstration of power? Uh, how do the Chinese use air power to project uh, their military capability? Yeah. Um, so, again, a lot, a lot to unpack, but we'll talk about Taiwan first. It's, it's the easiest one to really wrap your head around. And it's they use air power with Taiwan as a way to signal their um, discontent with something that Taiwan does, right? So a lot of times you'll see if there's an official delegation that goes to Taiwan or like the more the most recent uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan that, that it angers the CCP and they express that anger in flying sorties, not just against, but, you know, into Taiwan's ADIS, uh, Air Defense Identification Zone. So when back in August, uh, Speaker Pelosi visited, you saw a radical spike in the number of crossings of, well, we'll call them incursions into the ADIS, but more specifically across the center line of Taiwan's ADIS. And for your listeners right now, if, you know, if you're not driving, uh, but you're at home and you are able to pull open a map of Taiwan's ADIS and you'll get a picture, an idea of what it really looks like. And uh, it's it's very wonky, right? It, parts of it jut up into Fujian. It goes pretty far out to the west. It's a big area that it covers. So with, uh, with the August incursions into the ADIS, the most notable fact was a lot of it was across the center line, which is the the notional line between mainland China and Taiwan. Um, and that's pretty aggressive. It's, it's actually very aggressive. So I looked up on a map in, uh, in Minnesota, you know, what the relative distances are. Uh, and I know your, your listeners might be everywhere, but for those in Minnesota, it's roughly the distance between Minneapolis and Duluth up in the north. So it's not very far, right? You can drive yeah. it yeah. in not, some, not so many hours, about 125-ish miles. Uh, so when you're crossing a center line, it's 60 miles, right? If if you're drawing a rough middle, that does not take very long. Yeah. And it looks in it looks incredibly intimidating if you're sitting in Taipei and you see, oh no, the Chinese are coming across the center line. So that kind of scare tactic is what they're using. Um, so that's that's really the story about Taiwan's aid is. What is unfortunate about it from the Taiwanese side? Is that of course, if it's if it's a very aggressive maneuver, they're forced to go and intercept these sorties, and what that ends up doing is it runs out the life of the aircraft that they have, and I believe one of their primary ones is the F-16V that they they have, right? And so they fly their aircraft up to intercept the sorties. They're burning out their engines. They're burning out all the different components in the aircraft. They're also putting their pilots on alert which for days on end is mentally draining and exhausting. And then their maintainers obviously are working around the clock to try to sustain the intercepts. And so actually they stopped intercepting every sortie that crossed into Taiwan's aid is uh, smart, smart <laughs> last year too. Well, smart, but also, you know, strategic window of opportunity for China. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in terms, I want to touch on the more broad power projection and it's really, really hard to say. One of the things, as I mentioned earlier, that China really doesn't have to sustain that longer reach 
is they don't have the logistics really behind it. They still, they have aerial uh, in-air refueling capabilities. It's just not quite as robust as say the US, um, not even nearly. So while they can go out for longer sorties in the air, a lot of the times when they're doing power projection, it's actually gonna be more Navy ships, uh, slightly easier to actually push them out farther there's they have a few more ports abroad that are friendly to them that they can use for refueling resupply um but in the air right you have to have a friendly airstrip to land at uh, or you have to be able to in air refuel the entire time that you're doing your sortie and quite frankly there's not too many um not too many air powers in the region that are able to really contest that beyond maybe taiwan maybe singapore uh, maybe a little bit like Philippines, but so they don't use it so much for power projection, but the Navy, they certainly do. And it, it does uh, manifest itself in bullying, right? Pushing people out, just taking up space. Yeah. And I, I, I do have a quick follow-up on that. Uh, maybe you can answer it uh, just before we take our uh, a, a short break uh, to talk about the cybersecurity summit a bit. But the other nations, say in the South China Sea, the ASEAN nations, do they do much in the way of response to Chinese flights that are down in the, say, the South China Sea? Um, so as far as I'm aware, and keep in mind, I have not dug super deep in the details on that aspect. Um, not so much. Okay. The, the, the nations that have a really difficult time are Australia, Canada, the US, when we're flying, we'll call them freedom of navigation, right? Sorties, um, they get intercepted and that causes a lot of problems. The other nations themselves, I mean, I have not really ever seen reporting of Chinese overflights of any of the nations, right? Aggressive maneuvering that way. Um, but certainly, if you cross into what China calls the nine, nine dash line, yeah. that area in the South China Sea, they see it as sovereign airspace and they'll, they'll go ahead and they'll intercept or they'll get very angry and yell at you over the radio. Right. So that, that one of the reasons why it's so important to carry out those freedom of navigation operations uh, under true. the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and, and everything else is to make sure that China isn't allowed to, to uh, claim and then administer those areas without being contested. That's exactly right, John. All right. Dan, we'll take, take a one-minute break. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th through the 26th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And Dan, we're back. Uh, let's go ahead and talk a little bit more about the PLA Navy's uh, aircraft carriers. Uh, what, what have we seen from the aircraft carriers that Chinese currently have in an operational status? I know they have a, they just named a third one and launched it. Uh, do, they, do they operate their aircraft carriers in the same way as the U.S. Navy? Uh, are, are the PLA Navy's uh, aircraft carriers tools of power projection, or, or how do they use them? Uh, uh, so that's kind of the million-dollar question right now, John. <laughs> yeah. That's why I ask it. That's why I ask Yeah, it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so they have used them in 
carrier strike groups somewhat similar to what we might see in the U.S., but really mainly in the South China Sea. Uh, I haven't seen them go too, too far outside of, we'll call it the first island chain, right? They have made some, some um, they've done some exercises that have pushed them a little bit further out, but it's not, they're not sending these things all across the world and parking them in a location, right? Um, but at, part least, of that at is least because, not yet, at least not yeah, yet. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Yes. Uh, and I'm glad you said that because, yeah, a lot of this right now is they're still trying to figure out how to use them. If you look at a military conflict with China, a lot of it happens very close in and it doesn't really make sense to use an aircraft carrier when you can just launch fighters from the shore. So, right. So that's 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 kind of how. We're, tropes, we're still trying to see and figure out exactly what they're planning on using these for. Uh, I have a strange feeling most of the value of these things right now are actually for imaging, right? Letting the world know, hey, we have aircraft carriers, we can build them. And oh, by the way, the Type 003, the one that they just named, um, which is the Fujian, that, you know, it's a quite a capable carrier. It has the the EMALS system, the electromagnetic assisted launch, uh, which is the new, right, is very different from their first and their second, um, both names, those Qingdao and the Shandong carriers. Those were ski jump style. They were old. They were based off of uh, actually a Soviet era carrier. Um, the Type 001, the Qingdao, had a little bit less capability, a little bit, it was really, really uh, just a retrofitted version of the, the Varyag Soviet carrier, um, smaller too. They built up the size with the Type 002, put in some new systems, still had the ski jump. Now the 003, uh, the, the Fujian, now they have the Emals. They've got um, larger deck space. They can fit, they can actually send things off of it that they were not able to with the ski jump style, right? So fixed wing, uh, airborne early warning and control aircraft, which is a big game changer for them yeah. because they can actually see farther out. Um, and then they can actually put different size and weights of aircraft on on the newer version of the aircraft carriers. So we'll, we'll still have to see how they actually plan on using them when it comes to longer distance operations. Um, but Likely, if there's anything that kicks off, those things will be sitting in their home ports, and they're probably not going to bring them out to do too much. Okay. Uh, you mentioned EMALS, uh, which is the brand new system on the U.S. Navy's Ford-class aircraft carriers, like brand new. <laughs> yeah. The Ford is finally deploying for the first time. Uh, is this another example of uh, Chinese espionage in action, where they may have stolen that technology and reverse-engineered it for their own new aircraft carrier? So I do not have the answer to that. Um, and even if it did, maybe it'd be classified. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Um, certainly the aircraft carrier itself looks somewhat similar uh, to, to what we've put out before. So I wouldn't put it past them. Let's say that much. And I do want to follow up. Uh, you, you, you mentioned a really interesting concept, the first island chain concept. Uh, can you talk a little bit about more about the first and the second island chain concept? Uh, what do those terms mean? Why are they important? Uh, maybe you could also explain the strategy and operational concepts that the PLA might employ in a major theater conflict uh, where a war to erupt between China and the United States. Uh, 
in this first and second island chain concept? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think it worth it's worth stating up front that the first and the second island chain, they're very much a Western concept yeah. and a Western strategy, right? They, they actually came about by John Foster Dulles uh, during the Korean War as a way to contain China, right? To, to be able to operate within the geographic distance from China. So the first island chain really is the, the Kuril Islands um, that goes through the Japanese archipelago through Taiwan and then it goes down into um, the well, the northern Philippines and Borneo. Um, so you can you can pull up a map of this again, and you can see exactly how that pans out. But Taiwan is the midpoint there, which has some strategic implications as to why it's worth you know really really worth defending if you're using this concept to to view strategy in that region. Uh, the second island chain refers to the the farther out Japanese islands, the Bonin Islands um, and Volcano Islands, also the Marianas, so, so think Guam, uh, and then the Caroline Islands, which are Yap and Palau, and then it extends to Western Guinea, so much farther out. Um, and then there's actually been discussions of a third island chain, which involve uh, Alaska, Hawaii, and then even further out down into those Pacific islands, and then a fourth and a fifth island chain, funny <laughs> enough, in the Indian Ocean. So, you know, add on as many chains as you want with whatever islands you can pick out and you can, you can draw it. But how it plays out really is it's um, it describes a way of thinking of not only the U.S. ability to get into a conflict, to sustain right logistics chains again um, through these islands, so that they can, so that we can project power against China, but it also depicts how far China can reach out towards where we, where we are uh, holding territory, and where our allies are. Uh, so, operationally speaking, here. When, when you have these island chains, it does allow for a, I think somebody once called it a super highway of logistics to be able to flow in so that you can continue to project power against a threat coming from China. Um, and without the island chain, specifically the first island chain, you're just operating at much greater distances. And it's it gets much more difficult to sustain any sort of operations. If you don't control the first island chain, uh, you can pretty much say goodbye to any naval support there because uh, not only does China have the ability to strike it with missiles uh, through their, their rocket force, but they also, uh, there'd be no real way to sustain any operations out that way. You know, you'd send your ships off, and there'd be no way to resupply them. Uh, so it, strategically speaking, it's incredibly important to understand the one thing that I would caution, and I'll, I'll put on my, you know, think from the China side hat, is that, as I mentioned, it's a very, very Western concept. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, China is obviously aware of the island chain concept, and they use it sometimes when they're referring to different things uh, in their own strategies. But what it really stem, like what it really comes down to for them is that they're trying to fight a home game constantly. Yeah. And it only makes sense, right? If we're fighting away all of the time, it costs a lot more to sustain those, those, uh, that fight. And for them, it's a lot easier to 
incur high costs on the U.S. if they're fighting the home game and stand, using a lot of standoff strike. So that's where the island chain concept gets a little hairy because obviously if they're islands, they're fixed targets. And if China is building missiles that can strike these fixed targets and wipe out an island, you know, everybody thinks the doomsday scenario is what if China strikes Guam and right. wipes out Guam. Yeah. Um, it automatically complicates the situation for us and how we can even think about fighting back um, or projecting power towards that that AR. So, And I believe the, uh, the Indo-Pacific Command commander has been talking about the necessity for getting some sort of missile defense capability out in Guam, mm -hmm. a dedicated capability to make sure that Guam can can stay well defended from any kind of Chinese uh, missile strikes, even conventional missiles, right? Right, yeah. Conventional and and, and missile, missile defense systems are obviously one way, right? There's also, if you're thinking more about protecting individual assets, right, like hardening aircraft shelters, mm -hmm. that would be one way to have a little bit more survivability. Obviously, it only goes so far. Right. <laughs> um, but something more than just having a bunch of planes parked out under sun shelters or on the ramp. Right. Um, so, yeah, anything that we can do to protect those nodes in those island chains is beneficial for us. Um, and then, obviously, Taiwan, as I mentioned, being one of the, the key aspects of the first island chain, is really important. The question there is, what can you really do with Taiwan? And we might touch on it a little later, but you know, there's only so much you can do with Taiwan before you cross red lines with China. Right. Um, yeah. So it makes it it complicates the situation further. Yeah, the, the, that that is a fantastic uh, discussion on the first and second island chain concept. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, one of the things that you know, I'm a retired naval officer myself, but if you take a look at this. Uh, this potential for conflict with China, you realize that, you know, we're we're not invading mainland China. Yeah, this is not an army war. This is going to be a navy and air force war if if it happens. And I think we all need to hope that it doesn't. Uh, hope that both the Chinese and our political leadership find a way through this, because uh, right now tensions are pretty high. But uh, the Pacific theater, if you go back to World War II. Uh, it's the tyranny of time and distance, and you touched mm -hmm. on that. And, you know, amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics, and you, you, you again, you hit on that exact same point for how difficult it's going to be uh, to project power and maintain power uh, up against a Chinese uh, threat to, chi to Taiwan or elsewhere uh, because of how far those uh, supply lines are for the United States Navy and even for the Air Force. Uh, so it's a really, really complex uh, problem, and I, and I know that there are people all across uh, the Department of Defense and the intelligence community who are constantly uh, worrying about this problem and trying to come up with ways to deal with it. You're at Marine Corps University. I know the United States Marine Corps under General Berger, the Commandant, is uh, fu they're fund he's fundamentally changing the warfighting mm -hmm. concepts of the United States Marine Corps specifically to deal with these challenges out in the Western Pacific. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to the Na National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dan Rice, who serves as the China Military and Political Strategy Subject Matter Expert at Marine Corps University's Brute Krulak Center, where he specializes in China and Indo-Pacific geopolitics. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, Daniel, we're, we're about, uh, we got about 15 minutes left in our show today. Uh, there's a lot of other things I want to cover. I hope we're going to have time for it. <laughs> I would be uh, kind of remiss if I didn't tap into your expertise uh, to help us uh, take a look at, uh, you know, if the PLA actually carried out combat operations against against Taiwan, 
what what would that look like? Uh, you've studied China a great deal. Tensions are pretty high. What might be the tripwire that would force Beijing's hand to act militarily to protect their perceived interests with regard to Taiwan? Uh, this is Beijing's interest. As we fully understand, Chinese offensive operations place the United States in a really difficult position. Uh, what what are your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, so I I'm not clairvoyant, right? I can't <laughs> tell you what Xi Jinping or the CCP is thinking. Yeah, uh, but there are definitely some red lines that they've made pretty clear. One of those red lines for Taiwan is having a you know, a real U.S. military presence on the island. Uh, that is clearly threatening to them. They, the, the CCP does like to frame everything as so, uh, sovereignty, right? Where is their sovereign space? Are you impinging on that? How are you affecting their sovereign area? Um, and putting U.S. military troops on the front line in Taiwan, that would definitely cross that line. Uh, there are other things like Taiwan formally declaring independence that would absolutely cause a trip to that uh, and would cause the PLA to probably actively think about doing some sort of military operation. Um, As I understand but, it, Daniel, you're the, the expert on this, but I think I remember hearing they passed some law in China, in Beijing, that said that if, if Taiwan actually declared independence, that that would necessitate a military response from Beijing. Is that right? Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if it went to the law level, but they certainly spoke about it quite a bit Okay, and saying exactly that. So that it's, it's really hard to understand how important Taiwan is to China and specifically to Xi Jinping. Uh, but we, like it just to sum it up really, really quickly is they have a mental model and their imaging that they want to bring China back to its glory days, the great rejuvenation of China, right? And part of that is controlling the territory that was historically theirs in certain areas, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Caveat that, right? You got to be careful what you say. Uh, Taiwan, did it ever, was it ever under Chinese control? I, you know, if you go back to 300 BC, Chinese folks will tell you yes. Um, did it? Was it ever really in modern politics and modern global? Yeah, no. So there's a greater influence on Taiwan from Japan, isn't there, from the colonial timeframes? That's correct. Yes. So right then, I mean, it all depends on where you're looking at it and how you're framing the way you're thinking about it. Sure. It's it's difficult because China does take that. And I know it's used and abused the the long vision of things, right? Like the long term vision, um, but they they do. And so for them, there's a lot of a lot of different red lines. Some of them probably we're not really aware of, right? And you can be you can know the stuff that you don't know, uh, but it's the stuff that you don't know that you don't know that's the most dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, using somebody else's quote there, yeah, Rumsfeld. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so. That's that's the danger there, and it could manifest itself a lot of different ways. And the the way, so if you had to speculate on the way that China would likely go about uh, attacking Taiwan, uh, would probably be using overwhelming force. They've spent a lot of time. I, I mentioned I had taken strategic studies with the PLA officer, and 
one of the things that blew my mind in his class was how much time we actually spent looking at Western military philosophers. Oh, all right. Right? You know, we always like to say Sun Tzu and Mao Zedong. And yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah, that's China's strategy. It's yeah. like, no, it's not. Um, so one of the things that they really latched onto is the idea of the decisive battle, right? Okay. Like, how do you define a battle? Um, what, how do you shape the conflict for your own benefit? And so my gut feeling is that if it were to come to a military operation, they would use that idea, right, of how do I shape the battle as much as possible before I even send my amphibs out, my amphibious vehicles out, um, be, before I even send fighters to Taiwan. I'm probably going to use my rocket force, my dedicated standoff long-range strike force, and I'm going to make sure that nothing on Taiwan that's a military asset is able to ever come out and fight. And from there, I'm probably not gonna ever want to bring any of the US coalition partners into this fight because at one-on-one, -on -one, China versus Taiwan, it's it would be hard to see that coming out any other way than negative for Taiwan, hmm. to put it nicely, right? Yeah. Um, when you bring in Taiwan, the US, Japan, maybe Australia, they're pretty far away to be able to respond, but maybe then it's a completely different game. And so they're, they're very aware of that. And they've taken a lot of the lessons of more modern wars uh, to heart when they're thinking about, and you know, Russia, Ukraine is a really good example right, where right. Western coalitions that there's a lot of value there that people don't really understand until they run up against it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, unfortunately for Russia and China for, whatever reason they chose largely to go down the we'll do it ourselves route and so they don't have that robust network of allies and partners like we do in the u.s uh, or uh, you know any of these countries that are facing this uh, these kinds of issues so it's it I, I would also you know i'd like to say that when you're looking at chinese military confrontation with taiwan a lot of people or there's a, there's a good group of people that are saying it's inevitable, right? And there's a group of people that are saying it'll never happen. The there is a middle ground here, right? It is it's very possible, or it's possible that it could happen, right? But it's not very realistic that it will happen. There are a lot of other levers of power that China could use to sway that conflict that are not kinetic operations, mm -hmm. right? Uh, things like influencing domestic politics in Taiwan, which, you know, funny enough, could be a red line for Taiwan itself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. But influencing those, um, using cyber, using things that might not have a direct uh, kinetic effect, but could influence the population enough for them to want to come to the bargaining table. And, and that's really, right, that's the fundamental U.S. stance is that we'll let them hash it out however it pans out. And they understand that. And, you know, Taiwan could say, hey, we want to be independent. We know that's a red line for China. And then Taiwan could say, hey, we want to reunify or, you know, unify with China. And that's another outcome. And both of those would be a Taiwan decision, which we, we fundamentally should allow and support Taiwan to make their own decisions because they are, they're a self-governing island. They should be able to. Um, the question is, where does it progress to, right? And mm -hmm. if you look at the, the China-Taiwan relationship, they have had periods where they're fairly amicable. They're, they've got decent relations, 
but fundamentally they're just radically opposed to the way that they view the world. Taiwan does keep the idea of democracy alive. China says we want a one-party system, uh, one country, two systems, as they call it, right? Um, so it's it's a really difficult one, but I, I don't think the military outcome will necessarily occur, but there is definitely a possibility that if red lines are crossed and China wants to exercise that right, that they might. Uh, so it's kind of my takeaway on that one. So one of the things we cover on this uh, show pretty frequently is this concept of the tools of national power, diplomacy, the power of information, mm -hmm. military and economic power. Uh, there was a great segment on 60 Minutes uh, a week and a half ago. Uh, Leslie Stahl was over in Taiwan, and uh, one of the things you find out is that post uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit, uh, you know, there is the military response, but there's also the China, you know, mainland China, People's Republic of China, economic response, right? <laughs> so, yes. I mean, mainland China is Taiwan's biggest trading partner. There's an awful lot of things that go back and forth across uh, the Taiwan Strait in the way of trade. And one of the things that they talked about was targeting uh, pineapple exports <laughs> from Taiwan <laughs> yeah. into China. And they just blocked all, all of the importation of Taiwanese-grown uh, 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 pineapple. So the response from the Taiwanese people is everybody's going to have uh, pineapple for dinner. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, that was literally one of the things they talked about on the 60 Minutes uh, bit. So there's a tremendous resilience of the Taiwanese people uh, yes. to, to, to maintain their own uh, democratic system. Uh, yep. A high-functioning uh, uh, liberal democracy, and uh, that's, I think, one of the reasons why we're on, on that side. You mentioned earlier this yes. concept of uh, the PLA looking at Western military uh, theoreticians and the, you know, the decisive battle. That's the Alfred Thayer Mahan theory on the right. maritime side for sure. Uh, yeah. could, could you see the PLA Navy deciding to do a, a single massed battle against the U.S. 7th Fleet, hoping for a decisive outcome on their side if they bring everything to bear and if they do that that really you know gives them the time and space to carry out a full-scale invasion of taiwan and to capture it and secure it i mean is that is that kind of what what you're referring to um so i know it's you're right it's mahan and the strategy of the the decisive naval battle they've kind of evolved that concept to think more broadly about okay. the different domains so you know, I don't think it necessarily translates to uh, a fight against the Seventh Fleet with a massive naval war. Um, what it does translate into is definitely using that that engagement, that concept of a very, very large scale engagement that then sets the tone for the course of the war following it. Um, that's more what they're attached to rather than specifically it being a naval fight. Okay. Um, and so they they see that across all the different domains that they can wield. But um, to answer your question, there's so there's a lot of war games that go on that look at this, right? And right. it really depends on the players that are playing it. But sometimes that happens, right? Sometimes there is a decisive battle. And I know uh, a friend of mine, Ken Allen, who's he's one of the preeminent experts on the PLAF, the PLA Air Force, if not the preeminent expert. He was saying, you know, a lot of times when we're looking at this, people are saying, yeah, you know, China will use this strategy or that. And he's like, they never just say, hey, the aviators in the PLAF are just, why Why wouldn't they get in a dogfight over Japan, right? <laughs> They're rearing to go. Yeah. They, they might just do that. 
because that would be something we'd never expect, right? right? Right. So, so I mean, sure, there's definitely a possibility that I mean, the the adversary always has uh, a vote in what happens, right, and how they approach a conflict. So, the sky is the limit on the ways that we could totally be thrown a curveball on how they decide to uh, approach an issue like that. Um, there's definitely some merit in saying China, I think, I think, and I might be wrong on this, but I think they now have the largest Navy. They do. Uh, right. So maybe, right. Maybe it is a naval decisive battle. The issue that they run into, and we brought it up very briefly is when it comes to the training and the execution. Sure. And if you are running up against a seasoned veteran and you're, you know, very much a greenhorn, uh, odds are not in your favor. Yeah. And, 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 and let me ask you a follow on question yeah. right on that topic right now. And this is, uh, we touched on this a while ago. We only have a few minutes left, so I got to make it quick. Uh, yeah. Russia invades Ukraine. It's literally their next door neighbor. And they yeah. just run into a, a buzzsaw, uh, really incompetent execution of those operations. China, looking at Taiwan, that's that hundred and you know plus mile uh, distance between mainland China and Taiwan, and China has never executed a major right. amphibious operation, uh, and they really haven't been in a in a in a major fight of any kind, uh, really since they tried to invade Vietnam <laughs> and and got smashed by the by the Vietnamese. Uh, does that? I mean. Things bode well for the defense on this side because they're so they're so lacking in offensive uh, uh, capability on on the Chinese side. Am I totally mis misunderstanding what the situation, or is that do I have that right? Okay, so unfortunately, it's a very long and complicated answer, right? But I'll try to make it real simple. <laughs> okay. uh, really, really simply is that you definitely have. Parts of it, right, right? I mean, there's no question that an amphibious landing on Taiwan is a very, very difficult thing to achieve. Uh, no question. Now, the question is, how much resistance will they run into? That's right? true. That's true. So if if you use the idea of the using your rocket, like from the China side, using their rocket force to completely decimate any air power, any naval assets that Taiwan has, then you're left with okay, do we have any sort of like man pads available or portable missile systems writ large that we can use against ships or whatever? Um, and not until recently, Taiwan was hellbent on buying submarines and planes, right? For domestic political purposes. Yeah. And Taiwan can make their own decisions that they have every right to do that. Uh, we, I believe as the U.S., we had been advising them to purchase more missile systems that are portable, mm -hmm. and they now are doing that more robustly. Uh, but, you know, the question is, again, how many of those missile systems are there? Yeah. And how many can they actually use to stop an invasion? Uh, and that's, that's where it gets a little bit different, uh, right? Because if there is not a very robust resilience defense, because everything that you had was a either a fixed asset or something in a in a shelter or sitting on a dock uh and now it's all blown to smithereens you, you don't have much to respond with yeah 
Unfortunately, uh, Dan, we've come to the end of today's edition of National Security This Week. I feel like we're just getting started uh, on this discussion. (laughs) Maybe I need to have you back at some point in the future to continue the the discussion. So Dan Rice, a China military and political subject matter expert at the Brute Kulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare at Marine Corps University. Thank you so much for joining us today on National Security This Week. Thank you so much, John. It's been a real pleasure. Hope to see you again. So that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for being a listener to National Security This Week. Uh, We'll be broadcasting live from the Cybersecurity Summit next Wednesday morning, and our guest will be Beth Sanner, who served as the Deputy Director of National Intelligence for Mission Integration. Uh, that is a huge, huge uh, uh, responsibility that Beth Sander had, and you, you definitely want to listen in on that show. Uh, have a great finish your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues that affect American national security. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th to the 27th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington. You probably know that cyber threats are everywhere, but did you know that small and medium-sized businesses are the target of hackers in 2022? Yes, it's getting more complex out here all the time, and ensuring your company's business is protected is of vital importance. One breach and you could be done unless you get savvy and get protected. Created by and for cyber professionals, the 12th Annual Cybersecurity Summit being held in Bloomington from October 24th to the 26th is where you can gain insight and get connected with cyber professionals who can help you navigate these uncertain times. You can register today at cybersecuritysummit.org. Big spending Twin Cities politicians are pushing former Minneapolis resident Christy Purcell for state representative. Purcell's party boss